Where's that dust coming from? Still finding debris after vacuuming? Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has 8,000 PA of powerful suction to remove debris deep in carpets. And it's totally hands-free. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com. That's E-U-F-Y.com and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. Previously on Among Equals. There were so many people, something like I'd never seen before, and they brought us in like a, a limo. 1975. Joseph Sanchez, along with Carl Ray, Eddie Cominez, Jackson Beardy, and Alex Jamvier, attend the opening of the self-titled Professional Native Indian Artist Exhibition at the Wallach Gallery in Ottawa. So it was just the uh, five boys were left to represent. The PNIAI had been operating as a collective for just over a year, and they were already seeing the benefits of this coalition. We all got out, and people are clapping, and... You know, girls are hugging us and, you know, we were like a 24-year-old man. You know, I, I thought I'd arrived. That was really a rock star moment for me where I was just like a, everybody was, wow, wow, you know. And uh, the show was uh, very successful. They were, I guess, the largest show that they've ever had in that gallery, Wallet Gallery. We've made that champagne reception, but we had broken a, a, a barrier. Later that year, all seven would again show at the Art Emporium in Vancouver. So it was working. The, the rising tide does lift all ships. That's right. And not only were they exhibiting as a group in back-to-back exhibitions, but they were receiving commissions. Jackson was commissioned to create a painting for the Catholic Conference of Bishops. For his piece, Jackson painted his interpretation of the nativity, taking a Catholic scene and depicting it through an OG Cree lens. Here's what Jackson wrote for his artist statement for the piece. We see the virgin mother-to-be holding on to an embryo connected to the sun symbol. The mother is also connected to Mother Earth who is nursing her. On the other side of the sun symbol, we see an elder in prayer, ritually offering a bowl filled with sacred things. You can see the sun symbol is resting on his hunched frame, bearing him down with doubts, fears, depression, and all the ills of his time, his back to the very miracle he is praying for. It will take time for all to fully comprehend this phenomenon which has come to pass. Daphne also received a commission from El Al Airlines for a series of paintings depicting Jerusalem. And Alex, well, he began his mural, Tribute to Beaver Hills. Here, look at this. Whoa. What do you see? Uh, Well, it looks like Alex's work. It's abstract and colorful and almost calligraphy. And it's wrapping around a spiral wall under a big dome skylight. You know, from this picture, it almost looks like the interior foyer of the Guggenheim. Yeah. The mural is painted on the inside wall of a spiral stairwell, not unlike the Guggenheim in New York City, just on a smaller scale. Alex's mural follows the curves of the spiral wall, with each ring carrying a new stage in the story he's telling. At the top, under the dome skylight, he begins with creation, the formation of matter, earth, water. The middle ring, he depicts the emergence of powerful, spiritual beings followed by humans, 
The third ring signifies people living in harmony with nature and spirits, which ends with the arrival of European settlers and colonial violence. Then, the severing of indigenous ways of being. As the mural snakes around the base of the staircase, Alex depicts the aftermath of colonial violence unfolding in tandem with the quiet resistance power and re-emergence of the indigenous people of Beaver Hills. So where is this? It's at the Stratcona Community Center and County Hall in Sherwood Park, Alberta. And anybody can see this anytime? Sure, if you're in the area and it's within opening hours. Well, I hope our listeners in Alberta will make the road trip to Sherwood Park. So, back to that show at the Walla Gallery. It was necessary, if the work of Native art was going to be sold as equal to all other art in Canada, it needed to be in those galleries. Remember, Bonnie Devine said it best. There was an element of cool. You know, what they were doing was cool. And suddenly it, it was kind of, it, they kind of broke through this, this, um, this visual that, um, that non-Native Canadians had of Indians. For me, it led me to be uh, sent to Toronto after that with uh, one of the paintings uh, to be uh, measured for the Wax Museum in Toronto, which is really a bizarre thing for me. Joseph explains his brush with the Wax Museum on Young Street. The Juno Awards decided to have an award for multiculturalism in music, and they wanted a Native artist to uh, create the award itself. So. I did an oil painting, I think it's two by three feet, and they had this plaque underneath, and they would give it for 10 years. And so with that uh, uh, fantasy going on, the Toronto Wax Museum called me and said, well, we'd like to make a wax figure of you, because in those days I sported the cane with my long hair and my mustache, I was my real surrealist look. And so they took all these photographs of me dressed in my, uh, what I call my Bob Marley suit, you know, skin tight, uh, uh, white Levi outfit, holding a, a black cane, silver tip cane, and my painting behind me. So these were uh, like really, really fantasies. So the group and its members had achieved some sort of celebrity. Celebrity, recognition, desirability. This is Philip Gevick from Toronto's Gallery Gevick. He explains the evolving customer base for the group's work. Well, mo most of them educators, teachers, are more interested in Canadian culture. There's uh, so many uh, people like that showing more interest. And then some collectors, when they buy them, they only buy indigenous art. They don't buy anything else. The group had set out to establish a forum and spaces for the voices and perspectives of Indigenous artists. And by 1976, they had charted a path forward. But? Well, we'll get into the buts. But first, intros. I'm Soleil Lounière. I'm Ryan Barnett. And this is Among Equals, the history and legacy of the professional native Indian artist Inc. In our last episode, Eddie Cobinist, Carl Ray, Joseph Sanchez, Jackson Beardy, Alex Janvier, Daphne Ojig and Norvan Morisot came together to form an artist collective. There was power in numbers, they felt. And if they wanted to challenge the arts establishment in Canada, the seven of them stood a better chance if they worked together. This is the fifth and final episode in our series. 
The Image Makers. I grew up on an Apache reservation, and humor is just a part of their everyday thing. When if they loved you, you got teased. This is Joseph Sanchez again. I think uh, Native people have always used humor uh, as a teaching tool, as well as a show of camaraderie, family love. And it definitely was not any different with the group. In those early days, the group would meet in the back of Daphne's shop. From there, they would plot their next moves, but it was also where their unique bonds were forged. Alex and Norville loved teasing Daphne about her English heritage, her regal stature, about being the queen, you know. Alex was especially, you know, he was really great at it. He really loved teasing her. And in the portraits he did of the group, he depicted her with all this uh, British... Uh, symbolism in the painting. And me being that damn American was just endearing to me, you know, like, we like you, man, you're just that damn American. <laughs> so, you know, like it was, uh, I think that was probably started by Alex. In my memory, it was the Norval and Alex that teased the most. And I don't remember very much about the other guys doing anything, but Norval loved to tease Alex about, he only made designs, he didn't do anything else. He was just making designs. They were funny guys, and they just loved doing that whole thing with each other. Early in their formation, this group of seven artists had sent a proposal to the Department of Indian Affairs and the Canada Council for the Arts. They were seeking funding to help support their activities. $10,000 in salaries and $5,000 for materials for each of the artists. Was that a lot? Well... In Canada, in 1975, $10,000 was about half of the average income. But it didn't matter. Alex and Joseph recall they were never successful in receiving any sort of government grant for their activities. Alex remembers having to pay out of pocket to travel from Edmonton to Winnipeg to attend the group's meetings. That $50 ticket broke me every time I went, Alex told Michelle Hurley. I had to take money out of the family to do that, so we would be on soup for a week. So despite their success, it was a financial struggle to create and show. And then, something happened that altered the group's ability to self-organize. What happened? Daphne sold her shop and moved to British Columbia. Uh, she closed them down in 1976. She said, I have a lot of visitors come every day. I can't paint, I can't produce painting anymore. That's why she left the gallery, closed the gallery, sold it. Everybody was kind of leaving the area. At 77, I'm already in uh, down south. Joseph returned to the United States in 1975. For a time, he traveled back and forth to Manitoba. So just the physical distance, you know, and there's a lot, always a lot of difficulty contacting Norval and Carl, so, you know, uh, the collective by then, I think, were without having meetings and without having Daphne's shop, we weren't uh, weren't really doing as much as we could. It was pretty much starting to wind down. We had just different little shows here and there. The group would continue to exhibit together through 1977, but the shows weren't resulting in the growth they had anticipated. 
There was really a lot of interest in uh, in the big three. Norval, Daphne, Alex. So that generated a lot of uh, exhibitions. People wanted to have exhibitions, which I don't think we took a lot of them. Uh, but we weren't getting the larger venues, the uh, major galleries that we had thought we could get into. And then in 1978... What I heard is that uh, he was murdered. And uh, murdered in some sort of party situation. Carl Ray was killed. You know, and uh, that he was left to freeze to death in the snow. That was uh, kind of what was told me. You know, I don't really know. uh, And even today, I've tried to find out more about what, what really happened to him. But it seems that, you know, it was his own people. You know, people that he knew and partied with, and they were just uh, in an alcohol-fused craziness. They stabbed him and left him to freeze to death outside. In our research for this series, we couldn't find a news article or arbitrary that gave the details of Carl's death. But the details that are repeated are that on September 28, 1978, Carl was stabbed in a bar fight in Sioux Lookout, Ontario. Shortly after, he died in hospital. He left behind 110 paintings, the creative output of his 35 years on this earth. In the wake of his death, a series of cross-Canada exhibitions were held to raise money for his widow Helen and their children. You know, that was uh, a time that kind of signified probably an end of the group when Carl was taken out. In April 1979, just seven months after Carl's death, the Professional Native Indian Artist Inc. officially dissolved according to Corporations Canada. It it really was quite a a short-lived group. This is National Gallery curator Michel Lavallee. And, um, but what they they aim to achieve as as one of the first, you know, self-organized activist artist groups, um, their their experiences and the groundwork they laid really set things in motion for for artist groups in general moving moving forward. Despite no longer operating as a cohesive collective, various members did still exhibit their work together in the early 1980s, and their individual profiles continued to grow. However, on December 8, 1984, they would suffer another significant loss with the untimely passing of one of the principal architects of the PNIAI, Jackson Beardy. Uh, He died of a heart attack. He was 40. This is Jackson's widow, Paula. He'd been he'd been sick on and off for a few years. He it was a direct relationship to alcohol abuse. He he was getting chest pain. So he went to the hospital and basically they diagnosed him having an MI and he was put in intensive care. And he wasn't eating. Um, and he said, you know, he, he wasn't going to, to, to live. And uh, so he just told me to go home and look after our son, Jason. 
and he died shortly after that. Um, it was directly related to alcoholism. Um, and as you know, a lot of uh, residential school children died from alcohol-related problems. Yeah, it was, uh, it, you know, that symbolizes kind of uh, the problem of uh, not only within the group, you know, like Norval suffered a lot from alcoholism and being uh, kind of taken advantage of. They would party hard when they came to the city. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. In 1979, McLean's magazine published a feature entitled The New Age of Indian Art. It was published after Call's death and the shocking death of Ojibwe artist Benjamin Chichi, but before Jackson's passing. In it, writer Christopher Hume reports that following Norval Morisot's 1962 debut, more than 100, quote, Indian artists are exhibiting in galleries across Canada. Here, read this part. Um, so Hume writes, uh, it's nothing less than a renaissance, or perhaps as some would have it, the last great outpouring of a dying culture. So which was it? What? Well, was it a renaissance or the outpouring of a dying culture? Uh. I'm kidding. Here, just listen to this clip from an interview Jackson did in 1980. My way of saying things at the visual level says what language cannot say, and I think... That in itself, uh, by my visual interpretation, they can relearn uh, the traditions. And also, uh, it uh, forms a natural uh, communication level between all cultures. I'm a medium uh, from uh, generations back. It started as taboo for artists like Norval Morisot, Carl Ray, and Jackson Beardy to depict their people's stories and teachings through their work. But by the time this article was published, some 20 years after Norval began this kind of work, Jackson had filmed a segment for Sesame Street in which he teaches his son Jason the story of the Thunderbirds. Sometimes Jason and I draw pictures and tell stories. We're going to draw pictures of thunderbirds. There are different kinds of thunderbirds which make different kinds And by of extension, weather. teaches all the children watching Sesame Street that same lesson. So, in just this short period, it had evolved from taboo to something to be shown in 1970s pop culture. Oh, cool. <laughs> This was not an outpouring of a dying culture. This was a vital act of continuity, resistance, and resilience. And one of the lasting and most visible legacy of the PNIAI is the woodland style of art. Normal didn't really, wasn't really 
crazy about the the the, the term woodland art. It was it was coined by a reporter in a magazine in the 70s. This is Cory Dingle of the Morisot estate. He didn't create that pers- that that name or have anything to do with that name, but you know, now he's considered the origin of the woodland school of art. That there, there was not a woodland school before Norville, you know, and I think the members inspired art that did not have to be within the boundaries of Western European aesthetics or isms. You know, indigenous people have been creating for millennia. We don't need, uh, you know, colonizers to describe how we communicate with each other or to our creator or to make it into another ism. The Woodland School of Art, as it's known, has its roots in birch bark scrolls that date back 400 years in First Nations culture. Norval took inspiration from this traditional method of knowledge transfer and translated it into another medium. Typically, woodland work is oral traditions translated into a visual medium. It's characterized by its use of bright or earthy colors, heavy black lines, lines of movement, power, and communication, which connect figures within a composition. Duality is a major theme in the works of woodland artists, whether it be between animal and man, or man and spirit, or First Nations spirituality and Christianity. Another major stylistic feature of woodland art is the use of a kind of X-ray imagery. The artist draws the outline of a figure, a loon, say but its body reads almost like an x-ray image showing its inner spiritual life. And so all of a sudden now we have this, you know, connection of drawing spirituality, drawing, you know, non-Christian based religions. And so it it, it almost like a whole nother tree sprung up right beside another tree uh, of art. It infused a whole other genre, in a sense, a whole other perspective onto the larger Canadian art scene, where at that time it was old masters and, you know, white people painting trees, basically, right? Woodland art is in the same vein of surrealism, impressionism. It it gave us a whole new different language to, to, to play with. Of the members of the PNIAI, Norval, Carl, Jackson, Eddie, and Daphne are all recognized as woodland painters. The first generation also included artists like Benjamin Chichi and Roy Thomas. And there have been subsequent generations which include Blake Randolph the Bosque, Bob Boyer, Frank Paulson, Christian Morisot, and Brent Hardisty. Those are the group, the second generation, which one educated from the school. Their work right now, the, the outstanding, the, the different than the group of seven. So many of the, the, the talents right now is there. We can, we should be proud of the, what we have, and the world appreciate it. This is Bonnie Devine. And, and suddenly they began to see, be seen as intelligent, active, you know, um, entrepreneurial, talented, uh, forward-thinking, you know, all of those things that, of course, they were. 
But it, but there had been a screen in front of them that prevented people from really discerning who they were. And I think that that has endured. Uh, that that hole that they made, that they pierced through that screen, um, has stayed open. And, and many, many art, other artists, including myself, were able to pass through there and, uh, and begin to participate in the contemporary art world in a meaningful, uh, productive way. They came together for a relatively short time, but had a big impact. What they did in coming together led to the, the organization of uh, groups like SCANA, the Society of Canadian Artists of Native Ancestry, which included members like, like Carl Bean, Gerald McMaster, Edward Quatra, um, John Cardinal Schubert. Uh, so, so these kinds of... Uh, very important figures that were the second wave, really, of what PNIAI did as a group in organizing as artists to take things into their under their own control, um, to demand access to galleries and to collections, to create exhibitions. There weren't those opportunities, and to just just to to really fight for it. There and, and their contemporaries' art was really creating this excitement uh, on the contemporary art scene. They were, they were portraying reality of Indigenous peoples um, from their own perspectives and, and really got the wheels rolling so that everybody could move on to the next stage as a result. This is Michelle Lavallee again. Yeah, like their influence definitely continues to inspire. Many artists have have taken up mentoring, uh, just even through mimicking the, the style. They demonstrated not only the, the resilience and the permanence and the existence of First Nations culture, but just the continued presence um, as creative sources, you know, rooted in, in their culture, rooted in the multicultural world of today, um, and, and really looking to inspire people, even, even beyond their community. So what happened to the PNIAI after the 1980s? Well, Joseph, of course, and Alex are still with us. Eddie passed away in 1996, Norval in 2007, and Daphne in 2016. But their works remain. In 2006... Norval was the subject of the first major solo exhibition of a First Nations artist at the National Gallery of Canada. This is Greg Hill. And that was through, the, you know, the, partially through the lobbying efforts of artists all along and groups that we're talking about, but also it came down, I'm thinking particularly of a meeting between uh, Leanne Martin and um, Jim Logan from Canada Council and myself and Pierre Taberge where they advocated for this to happen and he said yes. <laughs> and it was like, oh, okay, our meeting's over and what's next? So so I had, because I was a, an assistant curator at the National Gallery at that time to say, okay, well, here, um, make the proposal to do the Nova Morso exhibition. Uh, and... Uh, Pierre Taberge calls me into his office, uh, submitted a proposal to do the show, and 
you know, I'm, I'm an untested green curator uh, at the gallery, kind of on the bottom rung of the, of the curatorial ladder there, and just basically said, can you do this? And of course, I didn't really know, but, uh, but I had to summon up all of my uh, confidence and say yes, and then, and then I had to figure it out. Norvan Morisot, shaman artist, ran from February 3rd to April 30th, 2006, and contained 60 original pieces by Morisot. So, so that show meant a lot to the, you know, the history of the, of the institution in terms of finally doing that, that commitment, what it signaled to artists, um, contemporary artists working that Here, one of our very important senior artists is finally being honored at this institution. So that, that there is that recognition, and that, and I think that instills like a kind of hope, or that there's that possibility that that can actually happen for you know another artist practicing at the time. Corey Dengel. <laughs> like you know. Um, and I'm being cheeky, I know, but if I went to any other country and we weren't dealing with the indigenous aspect of it, and I said, your National Gallery hasn't done a show of your greatest artist that you've ever produced yet? No, we, of course we do. We've done like 10. A retrospective of Daphne's work followed in 2009 and one on Alex Genvier in 2016. All three of these artists, it's worth noting, received the Order of Canada before ever being featured at the National Gallery. How close together were their awards? Norval received his in 1978, Daphne in 86. Alex received his Order of Canada just a mere seven years before his National Gallery show. So what does this show us? Well, there are still systemic issues facing Indigenous artists today. A second-class citizenship not the least of which is seen through the valuation of their work. If we talk about just price per painting, we get multiple times the money in a contemporary setting than we do in an indigenous setting. We, we have indigenous auctions of indigenous art. If, you, if you're an indigenous person, you're in an, in an indigenous auction. And sadly, that indigenous auction gets a fraction of value attained to it than a contemporary auction. And, and why is that? Uh, why do we celebrate when an indigenous painting, like we had a record-breaking sale uh, a month ago of one of Norval's works for around 360,000, Why is that celebrated as an amazing feat when a, a Harris goes for seven million? That's Lauren Harris, a member of the original group of seven. Harris is a, a, a fantastic artist, but he, he's not Norval Morrison in that sense. Um, as, as legacy goes, as contributions to society goes. And then there's the issue of forgery. I'm involved with... Uh... The, the group, the Norval Morso Heritage Society, which uh, was mandated by Norval in, in 2005, 
five to, to try to address specifically head on this problem of, of forgeries of his work. And there, and there were forgeries of his work for decades before then, but it was a, but it was a small problem and it was a, and it was a problem that he didn't want to do anything about because in some cases you know it could be a family member. So it's out of you know these are acts of desperation. But then, and then, thousands, these thousands of forgeries being really, really awful uh, paintings, which dragged down Morisot's legacy. So, so the scale of that uh, of that process of that you know of forgeries of of his work is is unbelievable and. Uh, it's criminal, right? and we recognize that when we, when we become aware of it. Canada doesn't have any resources that they wish to lend to the art world to help us determine scientifically if a painting is fake or not. Um, we can say all the things that we want to say, but if nobody has saw the painting get, get forged, then it doesn't matter who says what, the painting's real. And if we say it's fake, we're, we get sued. And even recently, we told an organization that two paintings that you have for sale, we believe are suspect. And we even have the side-by-side -side comparison of the original painting and the fake painting. And these paintings are so horribly done. It's so obvious. And they threatened to sue us. So, how do we clean up the market? But the story of the Morisot forgeries could be a whole other series. If listeners wish to see the PNIAI's work together, there is a place to go. And that's at the Museum of Aboriginal Peoples Arts and Artifact in Lac La Biche, Alberta. So we are the only uh, museum anywhere in the world that has a permanent collection on display of the professional Native Indian artistry. That's Donna Felidichuk. It's It started with uh, Donna Felidichuk when she took over the, uh, the museum. As it was a teaching collection, it was kind of uh, not being uh, administered. So she took it over and... Uh, really put uh, some heart into it and I started by she was hanging uh, all this work that nobody had ever seen so she started hanging it in the halls of the uh, college and that became the uh, genesis of the of a new museum so in terms of a collection in our institution the group is hugely important so the group is our cornerstone uh, for um, our collect all of our collections and uh, and really important to our program here at the institution I mean, they, they are um, the ones, uh, the individuals that uh, were the, in the forefront uh, that are kind of the foundation of visual arts. So when you go to a normal art museum, you're going to have gallery spaces. Usually you have to stand quite a ways back from the works. Our works are in the hallway of our building. You can get, <laughs> you know, two inches, an inch away from it. And when I talked to Alex and Joseph, that was really important to them because it, it made the work accessible to 
to people, right? You can get up to it. You can see it. You can spend the time with it that you need to spend with it. You can feel the spirituality of them. Given the origins of the group and their focus on youth and the future, it seems fitting that it's a teaching collection. It's an interesting thing with what's happened to Native art. Uh, I rely a lot on on hope that uh, all these new young academics step up to the plate, go back to a bit of authenticity, because uh, if you get a, a master's, there's a bit of a, a trade-off to the master. The master always wants you to do his work first and be like him before you can get to yourself. And for a native artist, that self can be completely lost in the isms of Western European uh, fantasies about what art is. You know, I encourage young artists to listen to nature, get, get out of our consumer society, uh, try not to be enticed by uh, what I call the colonizer's gifts. Don't be uh, kind of wined and dined that you forget, in a sense, where you come from. And above all, please share your work and your success with your own people. You know, we used to be uh, community groups, but, you know, we live in a society that honors the individual. The art world wants art heroes. So we'll take one of you, but the rest of you are not welcome. Uh, this was something that the group itself thought about in those days, and it's even worse today. It's more important to share your work with more people, bring everybody with you. So how do we wrap this up? Well, I think we need to give Joseph the last word. Well, there was one thing uh, that I wanted to add about the dissolution of the group. Why did the group ultimately dissolve? And the group did not dissolve. The corporation papers did not get refiled. So this uh, dissolution was like a government-based uh, thing. And it wasn't uh, like any kind of consensus of the members of the group. You know, uh, I think uh, our, our corporate entity just kind of sailed off into the sunset of time. But the seven of us, we banded together to change Canada's perception of its art. So we became friends, comrades, spiritual souls, forever in our minds and hearts. Among Equals is a special presentation of Knockabout Media and has been made possible by the Government of Canada. It's hosted by me, Soleil Lounière, and produced by Ryan Barnett, Maya Foster-Sanchez, and Naka Bertrand. Our series advisors are Joseph M. Sanchez and Donna Fladichuk. This series features interviews with Bonnie Devine, Greg A. Hill, Michelle Lavallee, Carmen Robertson, Pauline Beardy, Philip Gavick, Corey Dingle, Donna Fladichuk, and Joseph M. Sanchez. Special thanks to Eric Berendt at the Indigenous Arts Center. Our series artwork is by Caleb Ellison Dysart, with additional work by Carlene Harvey. For a list of sources used in this series and to download the listening guide, visit knockaboutmedia.com. 
Enough about the media original. Hold on. <laughs> Too tired to clean your floors after playtime? Forgot to vacuum before your friends bring their little ones over? Let Eufy X10 Pro Omni help. Powerful 8,000 PA suction removes debris and MopMaster dual mop pads scrub away stubborn stains with ease. Save time and keep your floors cleaner. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799.